In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In the past year, Lori Metcalf has appeared in a hit television show, Roseanne, was nominated for an Oscar for her appearance in Lady Bird, and won two Tonys, one last week and one the year before. Joe Mantello, who directed her in Three Tall Women, her current play, described Metcalf as a monster in the room. She was still at Illinois State when she met the actors with whom she started one of the world's great theater companies. But Steppenwolf was still just a group of friends putting on plays in a church. It took a couple of years for her to abandon her day job as a legal secretary who could type 120 words a minute. She's best known for her role as Jackie, Roseanne's younger sister, but she's also appeared in The Norm Show, Getting On, The Big Bang Theory, to name just a few. Lori Metcalf has been nominated for Emmy Awards ten times, winning three. But even after so many years on television sets, it's the stage that Lori Metcalf calls home. I have a phobia of the camera. Um, A lot of people like to work with the camera and they understand it. Actors, they know exactly um, how much to give the camera and the camera is is their friend. And to me, it it just becomes this thing in the room that I have to pretend like isn't there. Yes, factor in, which just makes me self-conscious and I don't feel as free as I do on a stage. One of the joys of doing films is working with great camera people, cinematographers and their crew. And I've worked with some of the greatest cinematographers in history, you know, of of my generation, of my time. But they would say to me, we're going to do this. Here's this shot. We're going to do it in this lens. And very early on, I, I had this kind of silly habit of saying to them, I really don't care what lens you're on. Mm -hmm. It's not going to affect what I'm going to do. There's a thing I do. I'm going to do it that way. Now, should I tone it down? Should I make it bigger, smaller, whatever, to play to the camera? Mm -hmm. And I found myself incapable of doing that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. but And maybe uh, that's the the piece that I'm missing. I've done such... So few films that I've never had been able to develop that relationship with a cinematographer. So maybe that would be the missing piece that would put me more at ease, you know, that I knew that somebody was watching out for it and was giving me, you know, advice, too big, too small, or I don't even know what else it would be. But right, I, right, right. I just— It's really um, pretty much I, that. I can sort of gauge what 
I'm doing on a stage and in front of a camera, I can't tell at all. If the director says, well, we're moving on or do you want one more? I always say, oh, let's just move on because I don't know what we've got. I'm assuming you know that you got it. And so I have no clue. How did the experience of shooting Lady Bird come about? they, They found you? Yeah, I think I was on Scott Rudin's radar and the producer, and uh, he suggested me to Greta Gerwig, and Greta sent me the script, and I read it and really responded to the material. Uh, And then uh, she and I had a quick uh, phone conversation and hit it off over the phone. And and it was a very small independent movie. And so I I thought, well, I haven't done a movie in about 10 years, so this will be a a, a nice little way to put my toe back in the water and see how it is. Why hadn't you made a movie in 10 years? Nobody asked me. (laughs) I find that hard to believe. (laughs) It's true. Were you living a life where you appeared unavailable? Were you traveling and doing plays and out of town in London? That's partly true, yeah. I had been doing a lot of theater. They forget that, about you when yeah. they don't see you. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Take my word for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then when it exploded, when Lady Bird exploded, yeah. that was unprepared for. I, I had no idea what that, that publicity circus train was that you have to get on, you know, and ride for, for, for about three months. How was she as a director Up to all the you? awards seasons. I think I'm spoiled for life working with her. Yeah. She had done all the heavy lifting on on the uh, script itself. So the script was in such good shape that there were never those days when you get on the set and everybody's looking at each other saying, this doesn't really work. Um, what would you say right. here? You know, there was never that scramble or that uncertainty. Everything was crystal clear from, from day one. And Greta's just a natural at it. She just – she gives the kind of notes that um, – click with an actor and are doable rather than get in your head and and mess you up. Yeah, And where you start second guessing, well, I thought I was doing the line that way, but they're telling me to do it differently. So now what do I do? And then you just shut down. You just you just become paralyzed even in your head. Whether it's television, which you've done quite a bit of or film, uh, had you worked with a woman director before? Yeah, I have. In yes. film, had you worked with one? Uh, well, no, not in film right. because I yeah. just haven't done that much. A lot of female directors in TV, though. Yeah, and uh, and theater. Right. Yeah, um, and the TV that I've done though has been limited also because it's been sitcoms mostly. Um, so it's guys, you know, for camera, some women directors, but just that it's just that style. You know, I've done very little single camera TV, so this four camera sitcom style is also very different. A different beast, definitely from theater and uh, film. And that was a huge learning curve for me also, stepping into Roseanne 30 years ago when we did the pilot. My God. (laughs) (laughs) But when you you do the film— Yeah, let's ease into that. We we, 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 we had a long way to go. um, uh, But when you work—is there a difference for you when you work with a woman director and a man director? Honestly, I think it just boils down to the person. And with this person, there was a feminine vibe, I will say, with Greta because she's very maternal. And you felt – I think everybody in the cast and crew felt very well protected, um, uh, cherished, um, listened to. um, But but Safe. Very safe. And and I can label that, you know, because she's a woman or I can just label it because it's Greta, you know, just the person. You grew up in – Illinois? Southern Illinois. And what did your dad do? Comptroller at uh, Illinois State University. And what did your mom do? She was a librarian. And there were how many kids in your family? Just three. 
How many boys, how many girls? Oh, I'm the oldest and then a sister and a brother. A sister and a brother. Yeah. Any of them go in show business? No. How did no. you get started I, in I don't business? know. I um, used to put on um, records of musicals and lip sync to them. And fly through in, the air in the, <laughs> in the in the in the backyard on a swing set or or just uh like lip syncing um to uh gypsy in the living room. Not even for anybody to watch, just to do it. I don't know. But I, I so that was in me. But I it wasn't about performing it. It was sort of about a feeling of interpreting it, using their singing. And just mouthing it, but feeling like I was interpreting it. Something about that clicked with me. But then I was much too practical to go into theater in college. So, so where'd you, where'd I you go? I thought I'd never make a living at it. So where'd you go to college? Um, Illinois State University. What'd you study? German. And <laughs> the most practical of all. Wow. <laughs> but because so you could I see thought, those German musicals, you yeah, lip sync yes. those German well, musicals. Well, but I thought I'd be a translator. You know, so there was something about language that I liked. Was there German in your family? No, nah, I don't think so. Not that I know of. What's going on with uh, that well, little I Lori just, when I she's know. spinning around just... <laughs> that swing set? What's she thinking? German? Well, we had a choice of two languages to pick in high school. I picked that one, and I liked it. Right. I ended up liking the language. There are definite rules to it. It's very rigid, and I like that. It's reliable. <laughs> the, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And then fell in with the group that became Steppenwolf. At Illinois State? Yes. Who was there? That's what happened. Uh, Jeff Perry, Terry Kinney, John Malkovich, Joe Allen. They were Allen. going to school there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, all those people, went, I didn't even know this, all of them went to school down there? Joan, Joan and Terry? Uh, well, Joan and didn't, Malkovich? Joan didn't go to school there. Terry, Jeff Perry, and uh, Malkovich all went there. Um, Gary Sinise was up in Highland Park. He didn't go to college, so he was like our uh, um, bad boy, our wingman, wingman. for for, for being up in uh, Highland Park and scoring us, you know, a place where we could do motorcycle, where we yeah, where we could do our 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 sad little one acts. Uh, Joan Joan did come into the group later. She did not go to um, Illinois State. Who did you meet first? Uh, Terry Kinney, and then Jeff, and then John. And you met them where? You met them in a class, in an acting class, or on the street, or? Um, I was— How does that group know they want to become Steppenwolf? Yeah, I know. I know. I was actually um, dabbling in theater, but I was, you know, my—I was a German major, so wasn't going to go down the theater route. I was um, Terry's girlfriend, mm-hmm. and so I got brought into the mix as the girlfriend, and then—and that, that's how I got introduced to everybody. And what did you do first? Did you all say, let's form a group, a theater group, or we, that came we later? We said, let's form a theater group for the summer, for one summer. What year? Uh, 78. Okay. And we um, found a church basement who charged us, you know, a dollar a month, and we built some risers and put some chairs in there and did four one-acts and uh, thought, well, that'll be it. Right. But then we thought, so, uh, let's do another one, and then another and another. So there was no plan. It just evolved. When did it change? Uh, probably changed, I would say, like about five years later when we were able to quit our day jobs and join equity and then also move into the city, into a place. A space that, you found that became the Steppenwolf Theater. Uh, we found a space first that was uh, in a Jane Adams Hull house 
that we rented. And then from there, we moved – it took over from a group called uh, St. Nicholas Theater, uh, took over their space. And then by that time, we had built up a, uh, a really good board. And with their backing, we were able to build a place from scratch, from the ground up, literally, which we're still in now. They're still there. Mm-hmm. Now, in New York, you hear about Steppenwolf. I mm-hmm. remember when that takes off, you know, when in New York, everybody was like, they talked about Steppenwolf like it was heroin. You know what I mean? Like it was like the yeah. chicest thing. They yeah. Like, well, the first thing that happened was that Malkovich and uh, Gary Sinise brought in um, True West. That was the first one. That was the first one that traveled to, to New York. Yeah. And then after that, it was uh, Balm and Gilead. Right. And that one came in and ran for like nine months and was everybody was talking about it. And it was such a cool time to be in uh, in New York. That was 83, I think. And, and we had music in that show by um, Springsteen, Ricky Lee Jones, and Tom Waits. They all came to see the show. You know, it was wild. Where did you do Bob and Gilead? Off-Broadway? Yeah, at Circle Rep. It's right. It's gone now, but— The one downtown. Yeah. yeah I did Prelude to a Kiss down there. Yeah. The one down on Sheridan Square. Yeah, Tanya yes. Barrison. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I sublet her apartment. <laughs> I remember that when you were you were in New York and people couldn't stop talking about you guys. It was just a, a different style. It was different. It was a, How would you, you know, describe but, it? Well, they called it rock and roll theater. But um, I think it was just a shared passion that we had that made us just light up on stage. Um, Less conventional and, staging. yes. Yes. That's what I remember about them. Yes. And uh, and those plays were perfect um, vehicles for that. And dark. Yes. Some of them. And funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of the mix of like a Martin McDonough, sh- you know, yeah, show. Yeah, he's a bit, got a bit of Steppenwolf in him. Yeah, and theatrical. Yeah. That's what they were. They didn't back off. They wasn't trying to be super realistic or supernatural. Paul McGilliott had some really strong theatrical moments in it where lights would go out and a spotlight would hit a character and everybody's frozen and you'd hear the character say two lines and then the lights pop back up again and you're in a diner and it would come to life again, you know. What's a show that really stands out that you did back then that you always remember? What's a performance you gave? If you close your eyes, you can remember where you were and what well, you were holding and what you were wearing. Yeah, I've, I've got a number of them, I think. That was certainly one. And even before then was a production of Glass Menagerie that we did way back in that little basement with uh, Malkovich was um, Tom and Terry Kinney was a gentleman caller. And we had a local woman who was played Amanda. And uh, that was uh, the production that made— cr- we were out in the suburbs that made critics in town sit up and take notice of the Steppenwolf company, and they would start driving up, you know, to see our shows. It was, it was, uh, I don't know, what made it different? It was like um, John didn't try to hide that Tom was gay and desperately, you know, lonely and wanting to meet somebody, and I didn't try to hide that Laura was not. Um, mentally ill, you know, and that there was no clearly no hope at all. It wasn't. Sometimes it can be played like a young, pretty girl who, if she's fragile, fragile, and These if vague she, terms, that yes, use. and if she if she had a nice dress, let's and, make a real choice here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Make the make the ballsier choice, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. The tougher choice. Yes. Yeah. Now you you were 
dating Kinney. He mm-hmm. was your boyfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. And does that end in the middle of the uh, uh, the ascension of? Uh, well, we were a very um, insular group, and so there was a lot of mixing and matching. Right. <laughs> like, a, like in a rock band. You're like Fleetwood yes. Mac. Yeah, we were. You're all sleeping with each other. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're all Basically, buddies. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so you, but which you, made a lot of also awkward infighting and you know yes. like the, well, like well I that. can't I yeah I can't be in that play because you know I've just now broken up with him so you know yeah. I'm gonna have to look somewhere else but yeah no it was it was talking it was all. In that sense, it was also a very theatrical time. You know, no, no, the highs are highs and the lows right. are low. You, you, and you was crazy offstage we as were you were all on. crazy. All we wanted to do was hang out together, make each other either laugh or cry. And But we took the um, the work part very seriously. And, and that made us all better, you know, because we were having to play parts we wouldn't be cast in anywhere else because we were all the same age. And we couldn't find plays, you know, that would accommodate that. So we'd have to, so I'd have to be the mom in uh, J- J- Malkovich's mom in True West, and then I'd have to be his little niece in um, the Fifth of July. You had to cover the gamut. Yes. Yeah, so so we right. ultimately ended up stretching ourselves into areas that we had no business going into. Now, would you say that it kind of unravels and everybody they start to. Uh, come apart because stardom intervenes. Does, who's the first person that becomes a star? Malkovich. And, and what's the first thing he stars in? Oh, he we did that uh, movie with Sally Field. He played a blind character. He 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 made chairs. Places in the heart. That's that's the movie that took him out of the mix for a while. And believe me, I mean, we were so naive and so inbred and everything at that point. It's like John had this offer to go be in a movie, and we all had a big company meeting about it, deciding whether or not to let him do it. <laughs> Could John have his out? Yes. Yes. Did anyone vote not to let him leave? Probably. I don't remember. You know, because we did our voting like little kids, we would put our heads down on the table oh, and raise our, raise our hands. And whoever had to be artistic director at that time, because that was a thankless, worthless job. Nobody votes. wanted that. Had to count the votes. Yeah. So John got to go do it. But that's how, how you and know. And then he came back and what happened? I'm interested, we, but I'm interested um, in a group like that. Well, he, I think that that was before True West. I think he made that m- movie before it. I'm not sure of the timeline of that. But we were – so because we started out in a little suburb and because we very slowly made our way into the city and because we were centered around Chicago and not L.A. or New York, people kind of left us alone for a lot longer That because they would have swooped in if we were on the coast and just taken everybody away. We were a little away. more inaccessible. Yes, we Chicago. were. Yes, we were. So, yes. So, so that helped us um, get some more traction as a group. They left us alone for a longer time. But after Places in the Heart, does he become less and less available? Well, we all started to. You um, all started to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it was a big deal that we en masse took Balmagilead to New York. Uh, that was a big learning experience for us all. And and I ended up making a movie, Desperately Seeking Susan, because I was in town. and But— for me, that didn't spiral out into, um, you know, a lot more movie or a movie career, obviously. But um, we were starting to very slowly as a group, but also 
individually starting to get known. And we became more available because we were adding people to the company, and that made us more available to take time off, go go off and do a different project, and then return. But for a decade, we all tried a lot to return and and rejuvenate, you know, get 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 our batteries charged that on, on that stage again. Yes, it definitely was home. Who else has come up through the ranks of there? In anybody else I would know and reach? Did that success replicate itself with future generations of people, or you guys? It and nobody else really ever really became famous after that. Um, boy, I'd have to. Do you know John Hill? No, he's a young actor that you would recognize. He's um, taken off after having come into the company. Sally Murphy um, has done a lot of work here in New York. She's in a play right now called uh, Come Admissions, I think. I'd have to look. You know, the list has gotten big. There's like forty people in the company now. And uh, it's tough for us to get. I haven't been back in five years. You know, it's tough to go back and mm-hmm. commit to uh, four or five months mm-hmm. uh, out of out of a year. And because we're on a subscription season, they want to know like at least a year in advance when you can you know rope off that mm-hmm. time. It's hard to. I, I find segregating that time and protecting that time to do a show is very difficult. The last show I did was with you when mm-hmm. we did the show in 2015. When you came to New York, what was your first show on Broadway? On Broadway? Uh, it was um, November, written by David Mamet. The Mamet play, yeah. Yeah, with Nathan Lane, right. directed by Joe Mantel. Right. And um, it was a small part, and I just wanted to um, be in the room with those people, those specific that people. That was the political one. Yeah. Yeah, which I would love to revisit that now because, you know, it's just this idiot sitting in the the set with the Oval Office. I need to go back and read that. Or we need to do it like as a benefit, you know, just do a one reading reading of it. It's wicked funny um, and more timely now than ever. That was uh, your first show on Broadway? Yeah. Did you feel that Broadway was different? Yeah, I, I I did. I mean, it's you know, it's the same amount of work that you put in, whether it's there or at Guildhall or even a smaller space, like for fifty seats. You know, the the work is the same. You're still doing. You're putting in one hundred and fifty percent, and you want want it the best that it can be, and you never give up working on it during the whole run. But yeah, it's startling to walk out on a set that big. And we went from the rehearsal room to uh, invited dress, and it was packed with a thousand actors, you know. And that was a friends a, and family. Yes, that was qu- quite a shock. That was my first uh, first time there. But I I got burned on a show called um, Brighton Beach Memoirs that was supposed to open up in rep with uh, Broadway Bound. And I'd never done rep before. So I thought, oh, this will be really interesting. And it's on Broadway, so I can be in New York. And, and it's uh, uh, these two plays go very, really well together. Neil Simon, it's the same family, but a decade later. And uh, I don't think Matthew. he ever— Yes. Well, he wasn't in it. He wasn't. No. But I don't think they, that Neil Simon ever meant them to be to, – to go together in rep, but they just – it was a natural. Everything turned out wrong about it. They opened up one and expected it to take off, and it didn't. And then the other one, we had fully rehearsed it, and we had the costumes, we had everything. And it never even saw the light of day, and the first one closed after three weeks. And it was – that was a huge low – I had um, – 
relocated not my family but one of my kids out had them in school this was a revival of the material yes and i was trying and 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 i had signed off to for a year thinking okay well these things are going to run for that long and and after 3 weeks well a rehearsal period and then 3 weeks you know every we have a toast on stage you know well this didn't work sorry everybody bye and then I was stuck with this apartment in New York and my kid in school, and I would just, like, walk, take him to school and then walk up and down the sidewalks <laughs> thinking, what the hell am I going to do? Right. What am I do? It was really How long did depressing. you end up being stuck there? I, I was stuck with no work for about a month, and then for some re- uh, reason, um, Ethan Hawke gave me a call and said, well, there's no money here at all, but you want to come down and do a lie of the mind with us down at uh, the group theater. So that was something to work on, and that got me out of my head, you know. I talked to Lori a couple of months ago, just before the recent cancellation of Roseanne. After it all happened, I called to get her take on ABC's decision. Lori declined to comment. Coming up, we talk about what it was like to gather the team, cast, and crew together again. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Although Lori Metcalf's heart is in the theater, she's always cautious about what roles she chooses. I did a roll of the dice last year. What'd you do? Doll's House Part 2. Right. And that went well. It went well. And you got some sensational reviews for that. Yes. But I didn't know um, it was a roll of the dice because when Scott Rudin sent me the script and I thought this is either 
re- going to be really, really funny and clever or really bad. Yeah. The the nerve that it takes to name, yeah. name your play A Doll's House Part Two, And Lucas Nath, I knew of him as a writer, but I didn't know him. And I knew of Sam Gold as a director, but I hadn't worked with him. And the play wasn't finished. I mean, it was finished, but it was really raw, and that we were going to do workshops, and so it's 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 scary to go out on that limb and commit yourself to something that you have no idea how it's going to turn out. But it had Scott Rudin behind it, so I I knew that it would be taken care of. When you and I did uh, the Miller together, mm-hmm. you'd done it a couple times before, mm-hmm. and one of them was in London, correct? Yeah. Was it different for you there? You find the difference between performing there and in the United States? Well, I. Uh, did because it was at the National. So the National is so specific. Um, I loved the vibe that there's these three theaters, the big, the medium, and the small one, and they all feed into this communal lobby. And there's a great restaurant there, and everybody's having drinks before their show. And then the, and then the whole place just sort of uh, evaporate. Everybody goes into their certain theater that they're seeing and, uh, and then regroups at intermission and then back again. Uh, it's got a real flow to it that way. So I felt it was cool to be a part of that specific building. British cast and mixed in with an American cast for when you did the Miller over there? It, it was mostly British. Mostly British. Yes. A difference in the way that they act, rehearse? Do they have a different approach? E- would you say it's the opposite of the Steppenwolf approach? <laughs> I, I wouldn't call it rock and roll. Right. Um, well, yeah. Uh, or string quartet. Yeah, yes, exactly. I like to be um, really uh, uh, um, theatrical if I can find moments. Right. In, like, Where the character's in, theatrical. Yes, exactly. How you much know, I like, say to people, well, how well, when's the character built, acting? Yes, we built in some <clears throat> uh, ourselves, you know, where there's a shove Things that aren't expected. Right. Those are theatrical if they're not expected, I guess. And try yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. When we did All My Sons, we remember we had uh, Chris choke me. Yeah. I mean, he would choke me. Yeah. And, I, and we all thought, well, wow, whoa, I don't know if we should do that. I loved it. Yeah, I do too. I thought it was fantastic. I do too because sometimes the trap when you're working on a, a classic – that that is, you feel like you have to treat it with kid gloves. You know, you feel like you shouldn't make those big um, choices that you should be more reverential towards the material. Mm-hmm. But that keeps it from being alive mm-hmm. and seeming contemporary. I always wanted to sneak a camera on stage with me for the very last moments of our play because I had the best ringside seat available to watch your last monologue. I wish I had done it because I'd like to have a record of it, but of course I never <laughs> did. But I loved watching that every night. Well, you're very kind. It's a great ending. Sure is. It's a great ending, you know. Mm. Now, you did a play. You did another play right after that. You left that show to go do the Stephen King. Oh, (laughs) yes. And I asked your advice on that. Do you remember? Well, but when you do plays with people who— this is you doing um, Misery a Misery with Bruce Willis, who hadn't mm-hmm. done a play in how long? Like 30. 40. 40. <laughs> mm-hmm. He hadn't been on stage in 40 years. Did he like turn to you like a life preserver and say, you got to help me, baby. <laughs> I'm going to be leaning on you, baby. Yeah. Was there some of that? Well, we were codependent on each other right. because it was basically two people. That's it. Uh, there was a sheriff that showed up, but I shot him dead, you know, right. t- towards the end. He's not around for very long. No, no, he's not. No. So it was just the two of us. And we, you know, we relied on each other very much. And Bruce worked his ass yeah. off Did he on have a that. good time? Yes, he had a wonderful he time. Did. Yeah. 
thank God I was worried because, you know, I, I, I didn't know – if your co-lead is having a bad time, right. you know, it's everybody's miserable. Right. But Bruce would show up, you know, like an hour and a half early before the shows. Of course, he had to get into a bunch of uh, body makeup because he'd been, you know – um, in an accident, and he's, he's, he's got his, his head's all banged up, and he's got scar, cuts and scars all over his legs. So he was always the first one there. He was all he all. We would do you know like a seven straight hour rehearsal day, and then he would go home with uh, the dialect coach and drill lines over and over and over again. He really really cared about it, and. Um, Audiences ate it up. You know, they good crowds. It, it was a different crowd than I've ever performed for because it was a lot of first time theater goers because they wanted to see Bruce. They want to see an action hero on stage. Right. And and if they had to go if they had to go to theater to see him live, then they went to the theater. So these were people that hadn't been before, let alone on Broadway. Right. And 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 the play itself. You know, it stemmed from the book, and then it went through the movie version, and now they're trying to do it as a play. So it was this odd journey. Yeah, and it ended up being half this, half that, not not any part of that, though, and uh, it, was, it just was its own animal. So we tried Who to— Who directed that? Uh, Will Frears, okay. Stephen Frears' son. son. Right. We tried to— Make it also as funny as it could be because there was a lot of oddball humor in it, and uh, audiences got a kick out of that. But I, I, it was kind of a learning curve for me to wrap my head around the fact that, you know, if the script never was perfect, if we were never perfect in it, the audience was still having a ball right. and and feeling like they were getting their money's worth. What theater so, were you in? Uh. I know, I always forget all the names of them. It was them. a big house. Yeah, really big. big. Twelve hundred, I think. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Oh, and and it sold well. He sold the tickets. No, I'm sure. I'm yep. sure. When you think about plays, think about a moment, and I'm sure there's many of them. But try to think about a moment of you on stage with someone or another group of people, and in terms of what acting means to you. Well, I, what was one that you just never can get out of your head? You thought this is it. This is what it's about. This is what I got into this for. I don't know. I'm not going to say a specific thing, but it's the feeling of being in such control that you know that you've got a moment coming up, and it's like a big softball this big coming at you, yeah, and yeah. you've got a bat this big, right. and you're going right. to hit it out of the park. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. It's coming, and boom, you get to do it, and you hear the immediate reaction yeah. from the from the audience, whether yeah. it's a laugh or whether it's a sob, yeah. whatever or it is. Just listening. The, or whether it's a you can hear a pin drop, yeah. and it's that control, I think. And you've done your homework, and you know exactly what you're doing in that moment. And and you know it's going to be a surprise to them, and you know you'd like to be in the audience with this thing coming up. And right. it's, ah, I, I, I love that moment. I always tell people when, when, you, when you see a play that I've ever been in, I ruin the play for the people <laughs> with me. Because I'll lean over and I'll go, I didn't do it that way. <laughs> I had this thing I used to do with this model. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do it that way at all. <laughs> yeah, you gonna do another play? You have one up in the. I got one open right now. You're, you're, you're running in three tall women. Three tall women. You're doing three tall women. The Albie play, which I love, and it's you and Glenda Jackson. Glenda, I know, I, I know, and Allison Pill, directed by Joe Mantello. How's that been? 
it was a crazy hard rehearsal period. Why? I don't know why. Well, I've never done Albie, so for some reason it was very. Sl- I found it very slippery, and again, it's that trap. I started falling into that trap of treating a classic. Uh, with kid gloves, and so I had to take those gloves off and just sort of um, play. Just but the- why, 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 why was it different in terms of my, my guess is, and this is a very lazy guess, is that Albie's his characters are very waspy and very cautious. Yes, and they're, and they're not as and they're not as volatile as the characters you've played. That's a part of it. Yes, yeah, but where it's up and running now, and it was a play that um, the audience taught us a lot when we finally got an audience in there. They really were the missing piece of the puzzle of this play. And now um, it's, it's been very well received and uh, goes through June. You're never going to give up doing the theater, are you? Not the theater, no. I could give up the other two, but not the theater. <laughs> the rush is so visceral when, you're, when you have those moments. That, and when you build it, too, you rehearse, oh, rehearse, you, rehearse. Yeah. You live it, you live it, you live it. And then I'm the kind of actor where I'm fantastic four weeks after we open. You come see the show. I'm not ready by the time. I mean, well, I need a lot of rehearsal. I think that's normal. I, I feel that I feel that I'm not either. I feel like I got to get a few weeks after opening I, under I my too. belt. So, yeah. so I appreciate a long-ish run. Now, um, so once upon a time, you did a TV show. And you did this TV show, and uh, you mean uh, the Norm Macdonald show? You did the Norm Macdonald yeah. show, yeah, that one. That's the one. That was a great show. I love him. He's by the way, he is fantastic. He is. Him. He is. You did the show with Roseanne Barr, mm-hmm. and that ran for how many seasons? Nine. You ran for nine seasons. Now, that's old school sitcom. You know, nobody yeah. runs nine seasons no. anymore. No. You're lucky if you get five. E- e- they squeeze esp- out five. Especially uh, at the, the 20, 25. And right, the, 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 the old schedule. Yes. How would you describe that experience? And you're much younger then. Yeah. And the show's a big phenomenon then. Yeah. And then you come back. Uh-huh. You, what was it like when you did the show the first time? The first time? Well, the first time— Was it just um, a job? I didn't know what if it was going to succeed or not. I got offered this pilot. I knew Roseanne as a stand-up. I knew John Goodman had done a lot of theater, right. but we all didn't know each other. The, there's three kids on it, you know. And the writers didn't necessarily know how to write for each character. And that was the combination of us doing some uh, initial shows and the writers watching what our strengths were. Right created those characters. They saw the strengths. They started writing towards the strengths. Someone pointed that out to me about Will and Grace when I went on that show. They said, you know, in the first season, if you watch footage, if you watch old episodes of the first season, none of them are really hitting those notes that they hit later on. They're finding those characters. That first year, they're stretching and trying to find out what they want to do in terms of the crazy. That's what it took. And so going back to it, Literally 30 years later, I mean, from the first preview, from the, from the first pilot was 30 years ago, from when it went off the air was 20 years ago. So going back to it, and we half of the um, writing crew was the same and with some new people thrown in, so and great people. But like Norm had been on the show, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so they knew those voices. Uh, well, everybody knew them. What am I saying? Even the new writers knew those voices. Sure. And so that was like riding a bike again. So and everybody it, came back. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody was happy to come back. What was the young woman's name who played the daughter who was on the talk show? When I was forgetting her name. Sarah Gilbert. She came back. Oh, she initiated right. the whole thing. <laughs> she, uh, she had John on her show at the talk. 
Right. And they did a little sketch, like a 20-second sketch of them. They recreated the couch with oh the Afghan, God. and it was Darlene and John, and Darlene was trying to come out to him, and he just wanted to watch baseball on TV right. or something like that. And the and the audiences thought it was funny. And then they asked John on the show afterwards, would you ever do a reunion show? And he said, of course I would. And then Sarah took the ball and ran with it, called everybody, and it turned in from a reunion show into a little nine-episode arc. Reboot. Yep. Obviously, people have made a big deal, which uh, to me is kind of mystifying to me, about Roseanne Barr's politics and that she's a big Trumpian mm-hmm. and that her character's a Trumpian on the show. Uh, when you're doing the show, I would imagine, I get the impression, none of that comes up on the set of the show. Oh, no. Everybody's just having a good time. Yeah. Let's just get the work done. Let's keep the funny going. Exactly. And you she know, doesn't bring it up. No. Huh. And they had to address it, you know, how can you not, right. in the pilot, right. this new pilot. And I thought they did it really well because, um, they, I mean, we don't talk about names, but we talk about there's a rift in the family because of how, how we all voted. The sisters <laughs> right. haven't talked to each other for a year, right. which is something that's really going on, you know, across the country. Right. That's that's a, a totally legit and honest thing to explore. And um and then, and then, what they it was the same as what they all used to do with all of the stories. They would take a big issue and then shrink it down to the family. So the rift becomes: what is it between these two sisters? Set aside from the election that causes them, to, you know, to dysfunction like that. Right. So when you come back and you have the same uh, group of people and everybody's older, and mm-hmm. I mean significantly older, it was mm-hmm. many years ago you did this show. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the writers. What about the directors? I mean, did you get some of the directors you had before? Yeah, we you had did. some of the same directors. No. Yeah. And the coolest thing is that I thought I would sit on the side watching a scene like between Sarah Gilbert and her kid now who's on the show do a scene in the on the kitchen set, which is a, a set that Sarah really did grow up on. And now she's parenting her kids on that same set, and Roseanne is in the scene watching her parent, you know, and being very judgmental about it. It's the kind of history between characters that you can't buy. You can cast people together as a family, and they did 30 years ago, but because we spent that decade together, we really did become one. And now as we revisit it, there's these built-in layers because we're back in the same house, and we've had— all that time together. So it's, I think it's weirdly deeper the second time around. And the way that Roseanne had always set up that show is that um, it was the writing, she wanted a kind of writing that was able to support um, heavy issues for a sitcom, for a multicam sitcom. I don't think of, I don't know of any other one that could go to the places that she did. You know, and bring in a darkness sometimes and really address things and not have it be really jarring for the audience. You know, she just that that was set up perfectly, I think, so that she could address issues that she wanted to as as seasons went by. Until, of course, Roseanne was canceled at the end of May. In an interview in 1995, Laurie said Roseanne should do a play. Quote, I'd like to watch her do something dramatic, like Tennessee Williams or Edward Albee. She'd be brilliant, unquote. While we stay tuned for that, Lori Metcalf herself 
can be seen in Albie's Three Tall Women on Broadway until June 24th. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Okay, fine. I'll fess up. All the new summer stuff I got, it's on sale at Kohl's. And the deals are so good. Like our Sonoma Goods for Life patio furniture, it was 30% off. Got 30% off backyard games, too. And even picked up grilling tools for 20% off. Best part? I saved an extra 20% and got it in an hour with free store pickup. So now we're all set for summer, and I'm pretty sure we've got a cookout planned every weekend. Select styles. 20% offer ends June 27th. Some exclusions apply. See store or kohls.com for details. Hey, it's Chuck Bryant from Movie Crush, and I want to let you know about a very special episode where I speak with TV legend Alan Ball on the 20th anniversary of his landmark HBO show, Six Feet Under. We cover everything from the show's inception to its legendary final season and finale. So many people have said that it, it was such a strong ending that that's uh, definitely very gratifying. A lot of other great shows have not been quite so lucky. So head over to Movie Crush wherever you find your favorite shows and check out our Six Feet Under 20th anniversary special with Alan Ball.